0: lifts your spirit this time of year, so I'm here to help lift spirits.
1: Gets to that part, I'm like, oh, it's time to stop. Anyway, <laughs> happy Darn culture cast Day, everybody. Welcome, 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 Jeffrey Simonoff, my friend, who is the SVP over at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization. Happy Darn Thursday, my friend, how are you?
0: I'm doing really well, happy to be here, and I'm your, your brother in pink today, so. I know,
1: good... I, I love it, we're vibing.
0: <laughs> we are, we are, it feels good to be here always with
1: you i'm super excited before we really jump in i know a lot of people had sent me some emails and texts ahead of this Are just really fascinated with what it is that rfk human rights organization does and what you're up to but before we jump into this you know what i love about knowing you and getting to know you is you just got a really interesting background you know yes you are the senior vice president of this organization and you do a lot of amazing work in helping organizations focus on workplace dignity. But I wanna get into who you are, my friend. Like who is Jeffrey, right? Like how, where did you grow up? How did you end up on this pathway towards workplace dignity? Let's go there.
0: Yeah. um, Such a landscape when I think about it. Um, I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey. sort of a, a quiet, shy kid, um, book, book focused, study focused, you know, um, kind of a confused kid in a lot of ways. And I didn't really understand why until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, was a pretty diligent kid and um, went to undergrad at Duke, um, went to law school at Emory University um after sort of a failed attempt at pre-med when I was going to school the sort of roadmap for my family was basically you're a doctor or you're a lawyer oh my God. um the doctor part the doctor part didn't work out after uh freshman chemistry at Duke and so I went down the other route that seemed to be the only one available um and I studied law and I I became a lawyer um I practiced law um during that, you know, formative time in my life, I think, you know, my family was and continues to be a really important part of my life. And, you know, when I graduated from law school, I think a lot of people were looking at big cities. And, you know, I was very focused on going back to New Jersey, working for a large law firm there. And what I didn't realize was that, you know, I was sort of a struggling with my sexual orientation and mm-hmm. that, know that I knew I was gay necessarily at the time but I kind of knew mm-hmm. and I just wanted to be in a place that was familiar and not you know too much of an unknown um a bit of a mistake in a way in retrospect because the opportunities to sort of explore myself more fully were very limited in a sort of you know suburban sort of you know New Jersey environment um so all of that didn't really get more fully explored until I you know, develop sort of a private life while I was practicing law in New Jersey and uh, came to realize that I needed to be in a different place and I needed to explore other things. And so I said, okay, time to like get into New York City. And I got an in-house counsel job as a lawyer in Morgan Stanley. And I uh, began working at Morgan Stanley shortly before 9-11 and then a lot of my life and my career and my perspectives on things changed a lot and we could talk about that period yeah. forward now or and whenever you like.
1: I mean, I think we should jump into that because I, you know, I've had the fortunate opportunity to know you for a few years and I think that story has really shaped, at least my point of view, kind of how you show up and who you are today. I didn't know this about you, though, the fact that you grew up thinking you're going to be a doctor. I don't know if we talked about this. I started off as a biology major thinking I was going to be a doctor as well, because that's what my parents thought I would be growing up. And after the first year of not having fun with bio and chem and math, I'm like, yeah, I've got to do something else. So I ended up in business. So we have that in common.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting how like families and environments really shape a lot of the rest of our lives. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, there's so much discussion right now on what children and young people can be exposed to in school, you know, people are trying to restrict a lot of things. And I was talking to my brother yesterday, in fact, last night and saying, we're talking about this topic of like, you know, what's available, what can people talk about to kids that are in, you know, K through 12 or in high school or college or whatever, don't say gay and all these things. And I said to my Mm -hmm. brother, I, you know, one of the things I wish more than anything, looking back on like the first half of my life is that I wish that there had been more opportunities to have, open conversations and to allow younger people to more comfortably explore who they are, who they could be without, you know, making them feel so stigmatized for what they believe they are. Um, And I I fear that we're, we're falling back in certain ways and creating a lot of harm to young people who you know, may have to go on lockdown because of the messages that are starting to surround them. Yeah. But, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting time.
1: Yeah, it, it's weird. It is a little bit like back to the future. And that, um, you know, I think about, you're right, I, I am also shaped by some negatives in my childhood. And I think it's that peer pressure that whatever kids bring into school, right, and what they learn at home, and that's all they know, And then if schools don't provide kind of a broader aperture for you know for students to actually learn how the world is it's hard and it it defines you and then you need to figure out a way how to break through that later on in life as a you know coping productive adult right um and so uh, that's interesting that you had that conversation with your brother last night because it's it's such a hot topic right now like what Uh, this next generation is being exposed to and how can we really support their future growth so that they can be the leaders of the world, right? And that's why we're on this call. It's about how do we shape culture? But I wanna go back to you. You know, I I want you to continue on. I think it's fascinating that you're able to get to New York and I know that um, who you are as a lawyer, but then who you are as Jeffrey really came to life, I would say, in the experience that you had. And you shared a very personal story um, that I, I can't relate to, but I can understand how that could have shaped you. And I don't know if you want to get into it, you know, sure. the New York 9-11 story.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of, I guess, like three crucial things that happened during my, you know, 13 or so years at Oregon Stanley. And so I was a junior-ish, Um, in-house employment lawyer at Morgan Stanley. Um, My office at the time was in the World Trade Center in the South Tower on the 65th floor. And on that day, um, I, um, you know, I had spoken with my parents the night before, complaining about an 8 a.m. meeting, which is relevant to the story. My brother at the time, a different brother than the one I was speaking to last night, was on his way back to New York from Madrid. Um, So it was in the air that morning. Um, And, you know, we had a meeting in a corner conference room that was facing south. So not in a direct view of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Um, And, you know, into the meeting, um, the the first plane hit the, the North Tower, which we couldn't see, of course, because we were facing south in the South Tower. But, um, you know, there was debris and I remember feeling like it was confetti and I couldn't understand, or paper, and I couldn't understand how it could be so windy yeah. that paper was like 65 flights up. Um, but, you know, within moments, Um, It was like chunks of stuff on fire flying by the window. And there had been a previous incident in the World Trade Center where there was a car bomb or something in a parking garage. And so some people in the meeting thought that something had happened that could have been like that. And so, you know, we left and um, our training sort of tells us not to take an elevator. And um, so we walked down the stairs and, you know, it was... um, a lot of, a bit of misinformation, um, people coming into the stairwell, um, suggesting that maybe a prop plane or some pilot error caused some sort of crash into the North Tower. But their view was that what had happened was, you know, something unique to that building. And so it's tragically, you know, a lot of people started going back out to their floors or to a floor, it was very hot in the stairwell. And we kept we kept going and um, got down to the 27th floor, the person I was with when the second plane hit our building. Mm. And so I Maurice, I guess I, I mean I would describe it. I've never really been in an earthquake, but I mean it felt to me like the whole like you could literally see the the column, the stairwell column kind of lurching. Um, oh, wow. and I remember like, grasping the railing because I felt like the building was gonna fall over. And because we didn't have proper information, I just assumed it didn't make any sense. But to me, it was, it must've been that the other building had sort of fallen over yeah. our, was You know, In any event, what had been a very orderly situation became very chaotic. Um, we were able to get out of the tower, saw things that you really never wish you would have seen um, in terms of what people who were higher up did. Um, and, you know, long story short, was, was able to, to get to our offices in Midtown Manhattan, um, was able to reach my family, which was, of course, freaking out because, you know, they knew I was there that morning because I had complained the night before. My brother was sort of recruited to Newfoundland, Canada. And there's a Broadway show called Come From Away. That's all about his experience. But the relevance of all of it, I think, to why it's, besides it just being a very like jarring event that affects you and stays with you forever, you know, it, it, it related to how I think about my work and how I think about workplaces because there were 2000 people working for Morgan Stanley in the South Tower, um, all of whom, well, virtually all of whom survived except for the team that was most responsible for our safety Which was the corporate security team, which mostly perished. Um, But there were 2,000 workers that were in that building. And questions came up pretty quickly about: you know, Morgan Stanley is a publicly traded company, Um, they have clients, you know, there's this push-pull between business and humanity in a way. Um, And the questions came up around when are those people in the World Trade Center going to get back to work? Um, and so I recall being sort of pulled into conversations on this topic you know, very quickly as a very junior person, junior lawyer an employment law angle. And I remember taking the point of view in sort of my own fuzzied traumatic state of, look, we're a global company. Those people in the World Trade Center are not really in a position to contribute in ways that you may wish. And so we need people in London and Singapore and Hong Kong and quite frankly, Midtown Manhattan to step up so that the colleagues who are in the building can find space to recover, um, grieve, um, commune with others. Um, and then contribute in ways that make sense at a different point in time. And so the the company sort of relaxed its uh, leave policies for everyone in the World Trade Center through Thanksgiving of that year. And of course, many people chose to come back. Like I, for example, was back within a week because I needed to be with people who... Understood my experience. I mean, if I spent all that time with my parents, I think I would have gone crazy yeah. because, like, no one really got it. I mean, and so I benefited from the structures that were set up by Morgan Stanley to allow colleagues to come together to talk, to support one another, um, and to recognize not everyone could just shut off a you know, flip a switch and like whatever happened sort of went away. So. Um, you know the the way that it was ultimately handled after some you know conversations that needed to be ha- happen was important um and i think there's a human-centered way to help respond to something like that that can't be forgotten whatever the traumatic event is that surrounds a workplace
1: i mean i First of all, I I wasn't there, but you sharing that story and just seeing it on the news, you know, as um, a citizen of the United States. First of all, my heart still goes out to everyone affected on that day, Um, your coworkers, all the people in the building who are here and who are not here and their families. Uh, I just can't imagine, you know, as you're telling the story about, all right, how do we get everyone who was in the World Trade Center for your company Back to work right away. I mean, it it pains me just to hear that because I think about okay, at the end of the day, or at the center of it all, are humans. And I think a big topic that um, I'm hearing you talk about too is like in the workplace, what is the role of emotional regulation? Right? What is the role of companies in terms of supporting holistic well-being for people and employees? and i don't know that even back then that was a trend right like it wasn't even a a thought
0: yeah i mean i think that you know there may have been early versions of eap employee assistance programs they were smart enough to bring in counselors uh, for people who wanted to and i found it quite valuable to sit in those circles and you know just talk and for an employer to create space for people to have those experiences, I mean, it would, you have to remember too. Like, we're very used to now for those of us who are privileged enough to be able to work from home, which of course many people don't have that privilege. But you know, if we were in a work from home environment, this issue of like getting back to the office yeah. uh, would be very, very different. I mean, then it was where are we physically going to put people, right? Like, you have It wasn't really like oh well two thousand displaced people are just going to like log on from home necessarily it was probably possible in some way but i remember like the whole process of like logging in in that environment or that time was very different and so you know the the thing was like using conference rooms and people who had their own offices have to share their offices and things like that so all those decisions were made by Uh, you know, by people who were trying to find ways to center the human beings that were affected by this alongside of the business priorities that could not yield. Um, So those things are often in tension, but there are ways to maybe not have them all in, in complete balance, but to not treat the workers who are affected by the event as afterthoughts.
1: That's right. Um, And you're right. I think about it was very different times back then, very traditional where people would commute into the the office and there was workspace, et cetera. And I think even today, though, I think about it, it. It's a comparison, but it's not the same. I think about the trauma that some people may have gone through going through this pandemic, right? Everyone reacted to it differently. You know, this threat of can it, will I, Will I get sick and will I possibly not live as a result of COVID, et cetera? This kind of going into the unknown. And for those who are responsible for, you know, a lot of people were working as well. Like, um, how do we get this work done? And the easy solution at that time was all right, everyone kind of um, shelter at home and work from home. And then fast forward, it is about how do you balance the needs of the business? as well as the needs of the human beings who now are emotionally affected in varying degrees, you know, coming out of this pandemic. And, you know, how do you do that? And so it's fascinating. I wonder about you and maybe folks that you worked with back then, like how they have landed in their careers and what they're championing and what they're doing in the workplace.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's a mixed bag in some ways, I think. You know, there was one colleague who um, maybe still even today, like if you work in an office building, some people are sort of the designated fire warden or they're in charge of like safety drills. Right. And the person who was that for our floor, you know, kind of he did his duty, Paul. And he because he did his duty, he and he survived. He got out. But he was there until the end and somehow, like literally saw the plane, like turn and bank into the building, like oh. X number of floors above. And, you know, was on leave for a year because of, you know, stress and trauma mm-hmm. related to that situation. And different people take different amounts of time to recover, but I found, um, you, know, you know, of course I was with the company for a long time after that. And I, I definitely found a sense of, of bonding and community in that group of people. You know, there were, there were at the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, there was a collective then, and the, and the company was able to get like special passes for people who were in the building at the time when the memorials were put up. And there was sort of, um, there's a through line that I think connects a lot of people that are affected by an experience like that. And there are lots of other things that people go through that bring that connection to them um, and so it's it's weird in a way that you know so much of what affects you as a leader or as a person can be tied to the workplace when I, I haven't really thought about it in quite that way until mm-hmm. now to, to a degree which is like so much of what happened during my time there really influences who I think I am as a person because you had the the 9/11 experience of what I what I what I took from it, um, what I what I what I thought was really important, what what, what, worked, what worked well, what didn't work so well, and then I you know I wasn't even you know out of the closet at this time. Yeah. That would only happen, you know, a number of years later. And um, you know, just to scroll to that, like my what what was valuable also about you know part of my time at that company was you know, they had resources, they had structures in place to support different communities, um, you know, a pride group for LGBT employees. And, you know, I eventually got involved in that group and I eventually led that group. And um, as a side hustle while I'm doing my, yeah. my day-to-day job as a lawyer, which is its whole other sort of complicating thing, you know, you have your day job and you have this other thing and how do you balance that? But for me, like the fact that that existed opened up an entire world to me as a as a person and as a worker that I found community that I didn't even necessarily know existed and I felt unburdened and I felt free and more liberated and more less distracted by what I was trying to conceal, um, that all of which helped me, I think to, to thrive as a contributor and so, even today, when, when I, I see certain criticisms or pushback on inclusion-related work, it, it, it makes me sad because I see how meaningful it was for me to be able to contribute in a different way. And the investment that my company made in these initiatives took nothing away from anybody else, but just created greater opportunity for me to contribute in a more equal and fully formed way.
1: That's right. I mean, there's so much to unpack with what you just said, and I think about, um, you know, the challenge today for talent. And I know there's different kinds of folks who participate on this call. I just saw our friend Jason, who is a CEO at his company. You know, the big challenge right now is how do you get people to come work for us, right? And how do we get them to stay? And you you brought up the topic of inclusion and the fact that there was. Um, an LGBT kind of group that helps support, you know, that specific community within JP Morgan or Morgan Chase, where you were. And it allowed people, because you're spending 80, 100 hours a week, I'm assuming, working as hard as you can, giving your all, um, it allowed you kind of the space to be more of who you are. You know, I'm a big believer that from a cultural standpoint, I, you know, the definition of culture, and I would love to hear your definition, is imagine an environment where the company, the managers allow employees to bring fully and exactly who they are into the workplace. And can you imagine when that occurs, all of the great ideas and or bad ideas, but everything that the employees bring into the workplace just brings great and diverse thinking, innovation, and then as a result productivity into the workplace. And when you think about retention, especially today, one of the biggest challenges that I know a lot of my uh, chief HR cohorts, you know, colleagues talk about, there are things companies can be doing, which is recognizing humans, um, that they can create that space where they feel included and that they feel like they belong. And so, you know, I don't know what you think about that and also what your definition of culture might be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I was so attracted to the Workplace Dignity Program at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, because you know the idea of um, an initiative focused on the workplace that's centered around the dignity of people, I mean, I look at dignity as our common denominator we all have inherent value and worth. We're all equal in our dignity. Whatever the differences we have, we're all equal in the dignity that we have. We're we're born with inherent value and worth. It's what human rights principles around the world are built around, um, the concept of of human dignity. And so, you know, when we talk in our work that human rights don't end at the workplace door, I mean, it sort of makes sense because Mm -hmm. people are spending you know, a third of their lives or more at work. And so whether their dignity is fully realized, whether their value is is fully appreciated is so influenced by the workplace because they spend so much time there, we all do. And so it could be, work can either be a a major source of meaning in our life or it could be a major source of insecurity, um, lack of respect, um sort of a degrading experience um, it could be one or the other and i think it's on all of us as leaders to focus on workplace experiences that you know create empowerment um, of the people who are there where they're given independence to really contribute to their full potential with extensive oversight uh, where they feel safe Um, where they feel there's an investment in their development, um, and where people feel that um, there's an organizational sense of purpose um, that they can rally around in their own day-to-day work, that they understand how their own day-to-day work really is achieving a specific purpose that has been articulated by the organization. And I think good cultures sort of have structures in place and day-to-day leadership behaviors that advance those sorts of things. Um, at the end of the day, you know, people have lives beyond their work, but they want to feel that they have the opportunity to thrive and add to a specific mission and purpose that has been laid out before them because hopefully that's why they joined the organization in the first place.
1: That's right. I think you're really touching on especially this generation that is now in the workforce, you know. Gen Z, and then we've got post Gen Z coming up. And I think they even, it was that Gallup study that was back in 2019. It's not even about work-life balance anymore. And it's not even about a job, but it's about my life. And what it is that I'm doing, if I'm contributing to a workplace, how does that fit within my life, which is a little different. You know, I, I, it's interesting that you say workplaces are one or the other. I mean based on my experience just growing up in my career i feel the same way you either feel like you step into a box and when you're in that box you need to snap to the rules of the organization right and where you can't fully be yourself because there are certain ways of behaving and you know you've got to get your professional vibe on and i think what's evolved and i think everyone knows this is that when companies can articulate their purpose and when people decide to stay or they decide to join because they're aligned with that purpose, they're finding more meaning you know, in the work that they're doing versus just showing up every day because they need a paycheck. Although, you know, there are a lot of hourly workers out there who are doing just that because they need to make a living. Um, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. I think it's
0: useful to make that distinction because there's a big difference in the experience, and you're as familiar with this as anybody, but there's a big difference between the experience of what you know we might call frontline workers um, who are in hourly jobs and you know what what their priorities are um, versus you know what I might call office workers or knowledge workers, et cetera. Yeah. I mean at the end of the day though, I think people want to feel like they that their voice will be heard, that they're being seen that they have some element of economic dignity that whatever benefits and compensation is being offered to them, no matter what the work they do at whatever level that they and their families can lead dignified lives. And so, you know, I think it's on all of us to find ways to understand what's important to our people um, and to try to live up to the purpose and the mission that we say and the values that we say we have. And I think that's a really interesting Point that's often glossed over, and, and you mentioned COVID and the pandemic, and I think a lot about, you know, people were stuck at home. Again, I always like to caveat it with that yeah. if you have that privilege, right? Because so many people couldn't work from home, but people, were, many people, were stuck at home, able to work from home, and it seemed in a lot of ways like the world was crashing in around us. You had COVID, you had the murder of George Floyd. Um, and I remember, you know, following a lot of that. You know, the political environment was incredibly toxic; continues to be, of course. But people were inbounding all of that stuff, um, fearful for their own health, and sitting at home. And, and then there's like, you know, an insurrection at the Capitol. So everything is sort of being bombarded on their TVs and everything else, social media. And there was a movement, um, and I'm based in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and there was a movement at the time um, where certain, you know, tech leaders um, were really clamping down on what workers could talk about in the even virtual workspace in terms of external things. And I wrote a piece about this, and and we could circulate it to the group later, but something like... Um, Standing up against the shut up and work workplace uh, was the headline, I think. And the point was, it's kind of a very privileged thing to say to your workers that they should put whatever's happening as it relates to George Floyd, as it relates to race and a racial reckoning in some sort of box, even though they're working from home. Like, how are you leaving it at home if you're working from home, by the way? Um, and what does it say if you have a commitment towards equity and justice, or whatever you want to call it in your values, and you're basically saying shut up and work to, you know, whether you're they're your white employees, your black employees, or somebody else for whom these things really matter, or for their families, you know, I go back to the Pulse nightclub shooting. You know, I needed a, I needed to take a beat. Like m- my community was hurting, and I hurt. And it would have felt really harsh to say, no, 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 that's for there. Right? I'm, I'm pointing over there.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. right.
0: That's, that's right outside the window. And so I think these are hard things. You know, you, you can't get into every every issue, but there's certain things where this blanket prohibition on allowing people, recognizing that people have fully formed lives so don't necessarily end when they that's stamp right. in and stamp out. So I I feel you on some of the things you were alluding to
1: there. Yeah, I know, it just reminds me, and I bring this up time and again, because it's just something that I'm fascinated about and I fully nerd out about, and it's old terminology. 1983, the emotional worker, right? So there is a book written by Hothschild called The Managed Heart. I think at UPenn there's a whole like graduate study all around emotional laborers, I guess that's the terminology, where as part of their professional role, they have to regulate their emotions. So you think automatically frontline, hospitality, et cetera, and especially dealing with, you know, not happy customers or guests and their role is to serve. Now I feel that I can bring that fast forward, you know, decades later and say, you know, what is the space in culture and in companies, not only for overall, you know, May is coming up, it's in it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And I know companies go all in, I'm talking about mental health, you know, and he- mental fitness. I think there's some space though to talk about emotional fitness and giving space to people that they are humans and that everyone, you know, you said this earlier, um, as it relates to how people were um, coming back from that 9-11, you know, your 9-11, story. And it t- for some people, it took a lot of time. For some people, you know, it takes a little time. It, it's just the whole point that you're saying that everybody is different. And I think going back to culture, you know, and now this level of emotion that I think we need to recognize as part of the workplace, whether you're working from home or working in the office or whatever, that, you know, the role that emotions play in the human beings and how, how do you allow that to create productivity inside a company. So I guess I'm saying the same thing you're saying, which is, you know, the Pulse nightclub incident so impacted you and you had to take a beat and take a minute. And I think for employees and for leaders specifically, I want to get into that, like, it's okay to not be okay. And I know you said that in kind of one of the articles that you've written, but you know, where is space for that in culture today and in the workplace?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question, and I think there is so much um, stigma even today. Things are improving; I think it's, it's, it's getting better. But there's a lot of stigma around mental health, um, and you know, even even companies or other organizations that have resources to support the mental health and the emotional well-being of workers, whether it's an employee assistance program, whether it's ensuring that some you know, therapy or related services are included in health coverage. Um, those are sort of the structural things, right? Like I, in our work, we always think about like, what are the day to day things that leaders? Yes. Can do? and Like, what are the structural things that an organization can do? Right? Because when you're thinking about well-being, when you're thinking about dignity at work, you know, leaders affect that day to day. But then the organization can put in structures that affect it more systemically. So, for example, a benefits program is a structural thing it affects yeah. all employees and either it has some well-being type coverage woven into the benefits offering or it does not but that's very different than a manager or a leader saying you know what it's mental health awareness month i as a leader of 10 people 20 people whatever having this sort of leadership savvy or you know sophistication on your own, without necessarily even being prompted by the organization, which hopefully the organization is prompting people yeah. not, to say, you know what? It's Mental Health Awareness Month. I have Jeffrey here from the benefits team to talk about what we offer you and why it's important for you to take advantage of these benefits. And if it's true, to have the confidence and the vulnerability to say, in fact, I've drawn on those benefits. I went through a really shitty situation last year and I was having difficulty. And you know what, this made a difference for me. You may not need it, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it's here for you and you're encouraged to take advantage of it. Because a lot of these benefits, it's mm-hmm. almost like um, parental leave sometimes, especially for fathers or you know non-birth yeah. parents. The benefits are there but people aren't necessarily taking advantage of them and we need as leaders if we want to advance a culture of inclusion and well-being to sort of find in our own day-to-day worlds opportunities to show a little vulnerability show some investment and knowledge of the benefits that our organization offers and create an opportunity for some discussion around those things
1: Oh my God, I love this. I love this because it's not enough for organizations, you know, for leaders. What I mean, so leaders saying, "Oh well, my company provides employee assistance programs, and assist, you know, my our benefits also provide access to mental health counselors or some form of coaching and counseling." Um, I love what you're saying, and I always ask this in the CultureCast, like, "What is the one thing leaders here on this on this CultureCast?" can be doing to create a culture of inclusion, right? And I love that you said show some vulnerability, right? And even if you don't have vulnerability or you're not comfortable yet sharing a very personal story, you know, what ideas do you have on showing the human side, you know, of being a leader and supporting others? Yeah. What do you think?
0: So I think one other area for that, is around like psychological safety at yeah. work. Meaning, are you creating an environment where people feel comfortable speaking up? Um, not just speaking up because like, maybe there's been a dignity violation or some you know discrimination policy violation. I'm talking about creating a safe environment where people feel that they can bring up new ideas or a different way of looking at things, right? Um, I think, if you're creating the kind of cultures that we're talking about, you want people to feel like their voice will be heard, that they have that if they contribute something or they have a different point of view, they won't be sort of ridiculed for it or shut down in a box. And so I think leaders, in addition to like, you know, showing vulnerability as it relates to things like wellness and benefits, like if you as a leader find ways to communicate, maybe not with these exact words, but basically, I don't have all the answers all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not always right. And in fact, here's how I've been wrong. And here's what I've learned from it. If you show that vulnerability, I think it creates space for people to feel like, okay, I can speak up. My colleague, my manager, whomever, you know, has made clear that they need my input. Um, they need the the benefit of the experience that I have, and you've created a runway for for new ideas. Um, you know, the classic examples of where this goes awry is where there's a very, you know, sort of all knowing, at least as projected by a leader or a manager, an all knowing manager um, who doesn't really demonstrate a willingness to tolerate any dissent and, you know, people keep, errors hidden um, because yeah. it's, it's, there's a culture of mistakes aren't OK, as opposed to mistakes can be something to learn from. And when people feel that they need to hide mistakes or inefficiencies, that's when dangerous things can happen, it's like physical safety problems yeah. with vehicles or in an operating room or whatever the case may be. And so I think by showing vulnerability, I don't have all the answers you know, I messed this up last week and here's what I learned from it. Like we need to talk about these things to be a better and a stronger team. Um, I think you push the culture in a positive direction and it's another way that vulnerability um, can really show up and add value to a team environment.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of um, being the leader who says, hey, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. And actually you're defining what i think diversity is for me and how i would love to experience it as i support teams you know in the corporate environment it is about like allowing all these ideas to exist and actually behaving in a way as a leader to just invite that conversation right invite the ideas to come in and that whole thing around vulnerability i mean, i'll, I'll be vulnerable i'll share this quickly but I know I've got a few former team members who I've worked with, you know, different companies are on this call. And one thing that I, I did, which I thought, yikes, am, is this a flaw? Or am I just going to do this? Um, you know, when I would get very specific, constructive, I'll just say even negative feedback from the person that I report to. Right. And then I'm, you know, that affects me. Right. And It's like, all right, how do I learn and grow from that? And I found that when i would go back to my team especially my direct reports i would say i got this feedback and it doesn't feel great and i need your help showing up differently what can i be doing differently how can you help me do this and i think from a true place of vulnerability as a leader part of it is i'm sharing this with you because if i am leading this team this is not a reflection of you but it's a reflection of me and how others just might perceive the function that we are a part of. And they're like, I found in doing that, um, first of all, I've learned a lot because there are so many ideas that I would not have um, solved the problem on my own um, because people are like, have you thought about it this way? Here's something that I'm thinking about. But also it's getting back to a place that you're talking about, which is when you show vulnerability and you create this place of psychological safety, it is about trust ultimately. Right? Do people trust you and trust each other to actually come in and do their best work and be their full selves? And so, anyway, I, I just shared that. I thought it was the wildest thing and crazy when I I did that, but I, I also grew as a result of that.
0: Yeah, that I mean, I love that, and I love the you know, bringing sort of trust into the conversation yeah. a little bit. I think, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at some of the trust work that's out there and, you know, how foundational it is to, you know, a thriving organizational culture. It's It gets back to, like, um, you know, I, I think you may have mentioned it in a, in a post you did recently. Um, people, organizations have made all sorts of commitments um, coming out of George Floyd or otherwise. And even they may have, in their own organizational values, very broad aspirational yeah. statements and you know trust is a really interesting thing it's so crucial um and the 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 company edelman has this thing called the trust barometer yep. and what's really cool about the trust barometer maybe a little surprising to people is that you know of most entities the people trust you know what they call my employer Um, more than any other institution, more than government, more than the media, more than NGOs, whatever. Um, And that means that there's this unique opportunity. There's this inherent reservoir of trust that exists between people and their employer. But like all things, and what's great about that is like if you're a smart organization, you could tap into that reservoir and really leverage it for something really amazing. But with your actions or inactions, you could degrade trust really quickly as an organization or as a leader. And so if you're, you're, you know, whatever the walk the walk, talk the talk, if your words, if your actions don't match your words, like a great marketing team and PR team, but it's all like fluff and there's not a lot of there there, or if you're an organization sort of putting out a lot of stuff into the marketplace, but your people back at home aren't feeling the juice, you know, trust can degrade pretty quickly. And so, you know, if you are a leader, I think it's important to not like sort of overextend your commitments. Like what are you actually able to deliver? Yeah, What are you able to get behind as a leader? Because, you know, If you go off with 10 things that you say you're going to do for your people or your team and you're only really and you know you're really only going to get one of them done. If you haven't managed people's expectations, their trust in your ability to deliver for them is going to diminish pretty quickly. It's kind of hard to recover from that.
1: That's right. Actually, that's such a good nugget, too, for everyone around Mm -hmm. commitments you make to your people and the follow through on it. Right. And the revisiting of it, not just I'm going to run off and do it. It's, I also think you come back and when it is done, engaging with the team and asking for feedback on how that landed, whatever those commitments were, you know, and then what can we learn from it and what can we be doing differently or better, right? So that it's ongoing. Um, I love that too. I do wanna jump in on specifically the Workplace Dignity Program that you lead at RFK Human Rights. So what does that mean? So if I'm I'm sitting at a company right now and I'm looking at Jeffrey Simonov, I read all about you. So what is it that your team, your organization does in support of, you know, companies who are sitting on this call or companies who are researching you?
0: Yeah. So you know, again, the work is built around the principle of dignity at work um, and. There's a specific human rights underpinning for that. There's there's this thing that many people may not be aware of, but it's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it covers many aspects of the way people live in their lives around the world, which includes their workplace. And what the Declaration commits to is workplaces that are just and favorable. That's the sort of anchoring quote. Um, and remuneration that allows people to lead, dignified lives. So that's sort of our small C constitution, if you will, that sort of guides our work um, as an organization and and as a program. And we're really focused on drawing from Bobby Kennedy's legacy of human rights activism and a focus on workers' rights um, and really translating it to specific action in the work that we do. And we do it through really four principal ways. Um, one is we focus on equipping organizations and leaders with resources and tools so they could actually make something happen. And we have a website, um, right. If you go to rdhumanrights.org. There's a specific workplace dignity website out there. And it's not just a description. Our website is actually sort of a how-to for the two sort of verticals that I mentioned earlier. You have this sort of day-to-day leadership vertical uh-huh. And you have the organization structural vertical. So if you're thinking, if you want to think differently about recruiting and onboarding and compensation and benefits, we got you. If you're a leader and you want to think about how do I foster trust on my team? How do I create a more open and safe environment? How do I really leverage differences that exist on this team that I have? We got you too. And we wanted to, you know, as a human rights organization, sort of open source and publish this information so people could sort of immediately draw on specific actions. In addition to that, that first element of equipping organizations with tools, we also provide consulting services for organizations who maybe a specific team needs support, or quite frankly, even an individual executive or leader needs some independent objective support, and we do that as well. Second thing that we do is we use our voice to sort of shape the narrative in this space. So that means speaking about workplace dignity, really getting beyond the sort of specific diversity, equity, and inclusion lens to our fulsome understanding of what dignity at work could mean, which includes inclusion at work, but is not limited to that. Um, so we speak, we do discussions like this, we write, we publish op-eds and essays, and we're pretty active on social media. Please follow me if you'd like. I'm on Twitter, JMS San Fran, and I'm also on LinkedIn, and so is our organization. We also create forums that bring different communities together to discuss workplace challenges that may be industry specific or worker specific. So for example, next month, we have a book and journalism awards as an organization. Um, We obviously care about the work experience of journalists. So we may convene a specific conversation around journalists as workers and as an organization you know, one of our key focus areas is, you know, sort of developing and empowering the next generation of human rights leaders. And so we focus on human rights education, um, you know, pre-college. And so we also think of educators as workers. And finally, we think a lot about how can we use our voice and our communities to advance legislation, policy, and movements that are focused on workplace change. So those are you know, the four areas that we spend time focusing on, we'd love to connect with folks and we'd love for individuals for whom the idea of dignity at work is something that resonates to them to help amplify our messages and this movement towards workplaces that really embrace and empower and protect the inherent value of work, inherent value and worth of people in this place where they spend so much of their life's time.
1: Oh, my goodness. I think you just gave a gift. You know, I'm very familiar with the the website on workplace dignity at rfkhumanrights.org. Um, so, aside from all of the amazing kind of pieces of advice, I mean, there's a lot of great tools there um, that people can use for their organization and that they can use for themselves. And I think um, a theme that I'm hearing too is, look, it takes leadership to make this happen, right? So, not just organizations, but you as an individual who are listening in on this conversation it takes your leadership to take that next step and so i love that you have all those tools there jeffrey um, i want i want to pivot just for something fun since i know we're coming up to the top of the yeah. hour i always love asking so pop culture you know i know we talked a lot about culture and how we can actually close this divide that's happening through really recognizing people and what you know, they're worth right treating people with dignity in the workplace and just generally in life, but treating them with dignity in work. I think about pop culture too, which is part of life. And like you as a human being, we've learned so much about you. And I so appreciate how open and vulnerable you were to share your specific story around 9-11. But then let's talk about something fun. So like, what are you into these days? You know, what are you wearing? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Anything fun like that.
0: Yeah. So thank you. Love, love the topic. Um, um, I'm a big food person, a big restaurant. I'm obsessed with interesting food. And, um, so I am always on the lookout for new and exciting restaurants, especially restaurants where, you know, I read this article recently from a, a woman who's a graduate student at Stanford. And she was really focused on like, you know, so many people who are foodies are like, where is this from? Where did you source this? Where did you source that? And the thesis of her uh, piece in the New York Times was, but are you really asking or like educating yourself on how the restaurant may be treating its workers? And, you know, it's an interesting thing about like what intention we bring to different things we enjoy. Um, You know, do you want to be a white lotus guest or do you want to be, you know, a different type of guest who's approaching you know, your service experience in a different way. I do love the White Lotus, by the way. Yeah. Um, And I'm very mindful of that show when I go on different experiences that mean a lot to me. Um, So I think about, you know, food is a big thing and sort of like the experience of, I'm have. i a regular at a certain restaurant in San Francisco and those folks are like, they're my family now. Like I love them and I, you know, I I feel like they're a part of each other's lives. And a lot of times I say like, you get what you give. Right. And totally. and all experience. Right, Marisa? Like you get what you give. And so can you put a little goodness out there? You can, and you'll get a little goodness back. And so anyway, I think about that a lot. And then um obviously I well, I don't know if obviously, but I, you know, I'm I'm caught up on succession and there's I don't I don't wanna do any spoilers, so I'll keep my mouth shut on that. But it's, Same.
1: it's like, right? oh I my know, gosh, right. About, it's crazy, right? Well how no, to go spoilers. Off right in case people are watching it although i do want to circle back i mean here you are coming through as jeffrey in your experience not only with food but the people behind the food i mm-hmm. love that and the experience of the worker i am to a white lotus fan wild yeah. right you, when you look at behind the scenes you know people should not be treated this way and they're delivering this amazing experience for guests and so i love that you take that into even you as a foodie just the experience that you have, not only with the amazing food, but the people, and not only how they treat you, but having a feeling of how they're being treated, I think is interesting. And I agree with you too. You give what you get in the world, right? Mm. Put goodness out there, it'll come back to you. Maybe not immediately, but it'll happen.
0: Yeah, um, better anyway. to live your life that way, I think, than otherwise, I guess season three of White Lotus is gonna be in Thailand, apparently, I just read, so. Oh, so, really? So,
1: so, yeah, see? Oh, that'll be crazy, yeah. First. Yeah, and actually Succession's really interesting too. We won't even get into the storyline, but it's an interesting look too at family and family in the workplace and actually how people are treated as well. It's fascinating.
0: Well, I think, you know, I mean, we just have two minutes, but I would just yeah. say very quickly on that point, I think, you know, we could have a whole separate segment on, you know, the idea of work as family, which is a very complicated thing There, there. I think it's a complicated cultural thing as a leader, to you know, sort of position your workplace as the family because it's a complicated thing for a lot of people, and they may necessarily want to work with their family. Um, obviously, it's a very different question when the family is actually working in the workplace, which is the succession story. But this idea of like everyone here is part of the family is very noble and salutary in concept, but the practicalities of that is like. I don't necessarily know that i want to work with my siblings or feel that yeah. i have that kind of relationship with the people i'm working with for some people it made make complete sense but not for everybody
1: yeah you're right one size does not fit all and i think it still brings it all back to that um vulnerability the humanity the trust that a leader brings into a team where it's not just workers but it's actually human beings that are part of what it is you're trying to create in the workplace and so um, with that, I know we're coming to the top of the hour. First of all, I, I heart you so much. My heart goes out to you. I, I heart that we know so much about you and that you're just so open about it. And thank you so much for all of the good thinking, the good resources, and really the movement that you are leading and that you are creating through RFK Human Rights. I really appreciate you. And, and yeah.
0: I, I was ahead. just saying, you've been a wonderful friend, um, a great contributor and supporter, and just a valued person in my life. And I appreciate what you're doing and just being connected to to your world, always. Thank you.
1: Well, always, I mean, I'm feeling a little love fest here. I think Cheryl Haskins was asking, hey, I got here late, where can I watch this? So everyone, this can be rewatched on LinkedIn right after this is done um also you can head over to my website that's been up on the screen Uh, you can click into this and any other culture cast as well as culture cast with marisa on apple spotify and google and so there are many ways for you to catch up to this content and to see jeffrey's full conversation if you got in a little late it's totally fine and i hope i can see all of you with the next live culture cast which will be on tuesday April 25th at 11 a.m pacific time our next guest is Jeremy Utley who is a professor at Stanford and we're going to be talking about the role of creativity and diversity so with that everyone have a great great Thursday and hopefully a Friday junior right let's go into the weekend strong
0: you're here, here thank you all right all
1: good to see you all bye, bye.